Welcome to The How, Channeling Water Solutions, a podcast from W12 Plus Programs. The How focuses on water solutions and the people behind them from around the world. This season, we are excited to share a series of conversations, each with two guests with two different viewpoints, on some of the most pressing water challenges facing the world today. From W12 Plus Programs, I'm your host, Judy Jane. Today, my co-host is W12 Plus Programs Chairman, Renee Frank. Renee will be joining us in one moment. In this episode, we speak with Tom Ferguson, founder of the venture capital fund Burnt Island Ventures, and Mohanad Hesham Abelrus, the co-founder and chairman of Life from Water, an international nonprofit delivering water and agricultural solutions to underserved communities in Egypt and East Africa. Mohanad is also the co-founder and CEO of Waterwill, a social enterprise that develops and manufactures affordable and durable household water filters. Today, we discuss why the challenges across the water sector have been largely ignored by investors despite the need. How do investors and entrepreneurs see the balance of making a profit while providing something as inherently invaluable as water? And what are the benefits of growing a startup organically? Without further ado, here are Tom and Mohanad. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Tom, I want to start with you today. In 2021, NASDAQ released a state of the water industry report and found that water-based enterprises, including those meant to address climate change, were valued at $500 billion around the world. Can you tell us what this means exactly? I am not a finance person, <laughs> um, but I'm really excited to learn. And so, yeah, what exactly does this mean? No, I read I read that when it when it came out and was like, yeah, okay. And then we sort of tried to square it with what we were doing. The only answer I can come up with is that that is the amalgamated uh, value of all of maybe the publicly traded entities as of maybe 2020. But that also seems kind of a little bit tricky so the 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 source of data that we um that we sort of trust in is the the good folks at uh global water intelligence who estimate that you know the actual market size for all of the money that is spent on stuff in water people so the operating expenditure and then stuff which is the capital expenditure last year was about 923 billion dollars growing at about five percent a year um, so what you have is a an almost trillion dollar spend, um, which is growing at about yeah we're grow, growing at a capacity of about forty to forty five billion dollars uh, a year, which is very healthy for uh, an overall market. And then the last thing that we think about a lot, and I've been thinking about this increasingly, is something called the Uber effect. There's a very famous um, uh, piece of uh, analysis done by a very highly regarded professor at NYU when uh, when Uber was uh, just getting started which just by looking at the current market radically underestimated the actual market size of what like Uber could be doing. Um, uh, and it was because it hadn't taken into account the idea that if you have new technology coming into a market, that markedly either solves a problem that wasn't being solved before or solves a problem radically better, that actually that market size grows proportionately by allowing to either release spend or transfer spend or bring it in from other adjacencies um, that allow the market size to grow. But bottom line, don't need to worry about it too much. It's really big and really foundational. <laughs> so it sounds like um, to go to, to go to very basic, um, for my own benefit at least, um, you know, we have these companies, companies, companies require people, they require capital, as you say, they require, you know, resources and stuff to run. Um, and so mm-hmm. when you look at the world and there's you know 
um, people have these water needs. And so there's companies that come to market to serve those needs. And that's right. basically the picture that you painted for us. Is that right? Yeah, that's how we look at it. So someone like NASDAQ would be just be saying, how much is Suez and Veolia? Well, Suez is Veolia now, but, uh, and, you know, uh, Xylem, who are my largest investor, uh, and then Evoqua, which is about to become part of Xylem, you know, et cetera, they would basically just add up the market capitalization. So the number of shares multiplied by the price per share, and then just add those together and come up with some very large multi-billion uh, dollar number. But in terms of we, what I think is a much better way to uh, think about it is, okay, within the water sector, you've got to be, a, it, this is innately a physical, uh, physical uh, world in which we're operating. And so people have to buy pumps and pipes and uh, like valves and gears and levers and like all the rest of the stuff that goes into making the actual provision of uh, water and wastewater and sanitation, well, that would be under wastewater, uh, services possible. And then all of the people to operate and make those systems possible. But there are question marks across, you know, really big stuff. So for example, you know, huge amounts of the world subsists on water delivery. Is that captured within that number? Whether it's the the truck drivers or the overall capex of the you know the spend upon those trucks, we wish we didn't need them, but they are a necessary fact of life in places you know, including Bangalore, right, which is the Silicon Valley of India, subsists on water truck deliveries, um, and so it's a pretty complicated picture as to how large the um, uh, large the the uh, the world of water on an operating basis is. But from our perspective as investors, the answer is plenty large enough so we don't need to worry about it too much now that sounds great i you know i think those are the big numbers that like i'll see in news reports or you know from mm -hmm. finance the, the headlines that come out so to paint that picture a bit more and yeah. just to get you know very physical of like what it takes to actually um, bring water to people um yeah and yeah in that sense uh so in that sense you know your firm burnt island ventures you know you're going in and trying to find like innovative new startups, new companies that can, mm -hmm. um, you know, address problems that haven't been solved yet, um, and you know, more efficient, more efficiently, more effectively. Um, is that right? Can you tell us a bit about um, where, what Burnt Isle Ventures does? Yeah, for sure, absolutely. Um, so we are an early stage investor. So we try to write checks as into to support entrepreneurs as early in their life cycle as we possibly can. Like our job, our mission at Burns Island Ventures is to find, fund and support the best water entrepreneurs in the world. And it's worth just pausing on that for just a second. In that a lot of people, when they think about uh, venture capital or they th when they think about the funding of new startups, they think technology, like, which, okay, I, I sort of get why, um, you know, from, you know, the water wheel to the motor car, to the semiconductor, to the internet, whatever. It seems like technology sort of has primacy. Um, but the story of technology is always that not necessarily the best, best technology wins. It usually, um, sometimes the technology is, is, um, is, uh, is enough by itself to just run over the whole market. And actually, um, the, Warren Buffett has this great idea is that, um, uh, you want to invest in companies that um, could be run by, he doesn't use the word potato, but it's just the same kind of, uh, same kind of direction. You want to invest in companies that could be run by a potato because one day a potato will run them, will run one. Um, 
but we really focus on the entrepreneur, um, which is why I'm really excited to, have, to, uh, to be sharing this uh, podcast with Mahanak um, because uh, I'm a huge fan of, of his work. Um, and so that's our lens, but really what we're trying to do, people sort of say, okay, you invest in water startup. What do you mean by water? Well, what we mean is we want to invest in anything that allows water and wastewater services to be provided at the, at the right quantity, quality, price, place, and time. Because those five factors across the water sector is really what allows people's water needs to be solved. You know, I don't want to get into it. We've got a, we've got a, a, a you know, a blog on our website that that makes that makes this whole argument completely. But if you remove one of those, for example, quality, you can have the right quantity in the right place and time and at the right price. But if the quality is not there, it's useless, or worse than useless, it's dangerous. Right. So if you remove one of these factors and it doesn't necessarily have to be in exactly the right place, you don't need to be delivering, um, uh, you know, water directly into people's homes or whatever it is. You just need to be alleviating the worst of their pain, which is I've got to go and work, walk for an hour and a half and then I'm going to fill up a container. And then because water is so heavy, a meter cubed weighs a ton. I've then got to walk back an hour and a half and all of that has opportunity cost in terms of education. There are gender issues, there are health issues, there are you know a huge amount of factors that come into water. And so that's really what we're, we're trying to do. Now, we obviously, we look at kind of like the higher end of the market and why it's really important to, you know, again, having someone like Mahanad on this, this conversation because he looks at a, a very different end of the market than we have looked at so far. But for what we do, you know, we have within our kind of group of 17, we were 18, 17, because we had one uh, company that got sold. We have 17 companies in the portfolio. And that runs everything from literally a plumbing company that installs boxes in people's homes to be able to monitor water use and then shut off the water if they detect a leak. Investment cars, insurance companies, sorry, love that. Um, we have really smart, our last investment was in people who have redesigned the sprinkler head from the ground up. So all external irrigation, it cuts water use by 50%. And they are going to be moving towards bringing that into the agricultural field. And then on the other side, wastewater treatment, we have um, aquafortis is a material science approach to zero liquid discharge, which is basically means the output in terms of your wastewater is solid, which is awesome. Um, and at the moment, people do that by essentially boiling water, which is n not awesome and really stupid and massively, massively highly energy consumptive. Um, but they do this on a material science basis at about 60% reduction in the overall cost. Switico, extraordinary uh, filtration um, uh, company that is um, driving a truck through what everybody expected filtration to be able to do. And then we have the software side of things with companies like... Doppler and subtility. Um, but when you look at the picture of water, one of the things that I've been thinking about is how deep does this rabbit hole go? Because, you know, as a person who's running a fund, the number of good people with good ideas, it's really important that that is as close to kind of infinite as possible and also problems to be solved within water. So the last thing I'll say on this is that your listeners should really not underestimate the degree to which there are problems in the water sector. I mean, everything from, I mean, the 
I mean, it's difficult to know exactly what it is, but the normal number that's trotted out is 2.1 billion people without access to adequate water and sanitation. Uh, Water.org um, uh, put that number at about six, 763 uh, for water and I think 3 billion for adequate sanitation. And unless we do a lot about it in the context of climate change, that drinking water number is going to go a long way up. And then sanitation is a really, really tricky problem. So it's, you know, but what we... That's one side of it. And on the other side of it is there are a million people in the Central Valley of Northern California that don't have access to clean and adequate drinking water. I mean, the, obviously, the canonical example in the US is, uh, is in, in Flint, but we've seen multiple examples at the moment. I mean, the, the Tulare Valley is now flooded because of what's going on in, in Northern California. Just the, the problems are ubiquitous. And this is even before you layer on rising sea levels in the context of 70% of the world's population living in coastal communities. Um, we don't think we're going to run out of things to invest in anytime, anytime soon. This is a very, very deep rabbit hole. I love that picture you just painted and so many things that you just said, um, especially about, you know, that framework of, you know, quality, quantity, place, time, price. I really like that because sometimes you see all these, you know, stories about water, you know, subcomponents and subdisciplines. Um, but that right there, I think captures nicely, you know, most of everything that you could think of what that needs to go into when you're thinking about delivering water. Um, and as you say, there's a lot of problems. There, there's a lot of things to, you know, make better. There's a lot of, you know, issues with uh, how we relate to water, how we work with it today. And so something that I hear often also is that, um, you know, water is an underfunded market. Um, so mm. there's all, there's all these problems. You know, there's all these people with good ideas. So do you think water is an underfunded market? And if it is, um, why? Um, well, the short answer is yes. And it, but it does also depend on your kind of point of view. So water is the predicate of all life, right? We just found a whole bunch of it apparently in droplets on the moon, which is very exciting. Um, means we can go and do stuff on the moon. I maybe would prefer if we spent a bit more time looking after this planet before we get to Mars. But anyway, like water is a predicate of all life. Um, and in that sense, probably a good idea to look after it slightly better than we have both on the salty and the non-salty side of things. We basically use it as a garbage can and that bill is coming due. Sorry, I should have said like bin or waste paper bin, um, given I'm a British person. Um, but it's really not, it's really not good. So in terms of its utility to life, the individual consumer, the, all of commerce, everything from the con semiconductor to the electric car to the carrot, right? Like water is at the base of anything. Without it, you can't do anything. People talk about the value of ecosystem services. Well, the problem with va valuing water is that you get to, well, literally all of value is at stake because without this, not only does your business not work, you die. Um, and so is this, is this as a concept underfunded? Absolutely. But obviously I work in a vertical um, or I work in a, in a market where slightly different considerations come in. So there was $78 billion of uh, investment that went into climate tech last year. And of that, the numbers are a little bit fuzzy, but no more than 700 billion went into early stage water companies last year. So you're looking at 1%, maybe, 
uh, but probably under 1% of funding for early stage climate tech companies going to water. And that's insane. Um, because when you look at the context of climate change, how is climate change going to manifest itself? And, you know, some very, very large percentage, 70 to 80% is going to be manifested through, it's going to be manifested through water, whether it's sea level rise or the, um, massive increase in precipitation, massive decrease in precipitation, desertification, changing, you know, river flows, like the whole lot. Like we deal with water, we deal with climate change. We don't, we deal with water, we're in deep trouble, but when you're looking at it through the lens of an investor, it's really important to layer on that, that, that like no one deserves to get investment just by virtue of the area that they have to be working in. If you're going to be working in somewhere that is um, in the marketplace for investment, you have to be building ideas and be building ideas in such a way that they are worthy of investment according to the rubric of the investor, whose job it is to make a return for their LPs. If you can't make a good enough argument that you are going to be a big factor in that return for those LPs, like it's, it's going to be tricky to raise money. It's going to be tricky to draw the investment into it. And so from that side of things, I think there are an awful lot of startups that if they were operating in, you know, whatever is the market of du, market du jour. So, I mean, I suppose kind of biotech and AI at the moment, but for a while it was, it was the blockchain and NFTs and all that kind of like, like sort of crazy end of history garbage that was going on at the end of, uh, uh or during, uh, 2022, um, which was, uh, the nonsense factory of all nonsense factories, like all sorts of crap gets funded in stuff that is fancy because like venture capitalists are basically like really quite good at, at being sheep and trend following, which weirdly is rational according to the numbers. Um, but the job of water, the job of someone like me and Imagine H2O, who I used to work for, which is a wonderful accelerator, but also people like Elemental Accelerator, the people who work in the kind of development of entrepreneurs is to help people who work in water make their case better. And the story is coming towards us, right? People are waking up to it. So I've, I've had conversations with 124 investors over the last 14 months who are all basically peeking over the fence saying, Hey, what's going on? I hear like water's like uh, it's kind of the kind of interesting story. It looks like getting us getting yes, it's getting more important over time. Thank you very much. And so people are getting kind of interested, but there is an it, it, there is a kind of a balance between you don't want too much money chasing too few ideas because those those ideas then get expensive, and water has its own idiosyncrasies that it's really important that you understand when you as you're coming in uh, as an investor. And so it's a complicated, it's a complicated question, but the short answer is yes. <laughs> yes, it's really, really underfunded. And the second corollary to that, it's really important that we as an entrepreneurial community within water is that we start making bulletproof arguments about why there are enormous companies to be built in this sector. I want, so before we turn to Mahanid, I have one last question for you. Um, sure. And as you say, you know, through the lens of an investor, um, I'm wondering, how do you think about profit for a water company? Because um, as you say, you know, and as we know, we talk about this a lot um, on the show and in, and in, the, in our um, organization, you know, water has, um, you know, a, a value that is impossible to quantify. Uh, water is, you know, is innately invaluable. So how do you think about that from an investment point of view as a company? How do you reconcile, um, you know, profit with this inherent quality of water? Yeah, I mean, at the core of this is that just sort of water is a human right. 
right is that we it's really really important that we provide water at the lowest possible cost to the people who need it right um and but on the other side of it is that the free and cheap availability of water in represents this enormous i mean it's a kind of opportunity advantage because so i'm here in brooklyn and i can go over there and turn on my tap like as soon as i get out of bed in the morning because i'm able to do that i then they get to go and take over like go and deal with all the rest of the stuff that's above that in maslow's hierarchy of needs you know like i get to go and put a roof over my head and then self-actualize or whatever you know like nonsense i get up to in brooklyn <laughs> um that's inherently valuable and i have an ability to pay for it um, and in order to keep the uh, system going, I think it's right and proper that I should be paying well, at the moment. I mean, this is very embarrassing, but I literally, I'm, I'm in a four unit building. I literally don't know what my water bill is because I don't receive it and it's not submitted. And that's for somebody who works like, and has worked in water for eight years. This is a crazy situation, right? Because also, and there have been interesting experiments run in places like Philadelphia, that why shouldn't we be means testing this? Because water is a regressive tax. Like everybody pays the same for their water, no matter if you're a gazillion billionaire or you're literally living paycheck to paycheck, which is an insane idea. Um, and it's actually very difficult to replicate. I mean, people look like governments. I mean, we were, uh, I'm, I'm British. Like the poll tax is what did for market Thatcher, which was a regressive tax. Like this should be like a, huge moral outrage, which nobody appears to care about. Um, but overall, I think that there are like, we need to take care of individual humans needs. But in terms of the creation of semiconductors, or frankly, kind of, I don't know, like, pomegranates or apricots or like, I don't know, like sushi rice or whatever it is, or much more like pertinently, uh, like one of these, like, you know, an iPhone 18 or whatever we're up to. Like, is it really right and proper that actually water gets cheaper as you use more of it? Like, is it right and proper that Nestle should be able to like stick a whole like bunch of water in like plastic water bottles and then sell them for, I mean, I don't, like, I don't even know what the unit cost of a liter of water is for one of their bottling plants, but they're selling it for $1.40. Like, there are all sorts of places where we can make water a lot more expensive without having any issue around equity at all. And then the other one is that like people really, there is also a huge amount of, of, um, of uh, pricing to aim at, right? People who have lost faith in their, um, their utilities in the US, what do they do? They go and buy bottled water from the supermarket. You know, that's often like $80 a month for a family of four. That's like the huge amount of opportunity for someone like, I mean, you know, our in investment here is Spout Water, which is going to start at the very top of the market, but will come down. And they're going to be, I mean, the, their initial retail price is going to be $600, which means that, you know, within nine months of working with this, pulling two and a half gallons of water out of the air, just on its own, and as an atmospheric water generator, like you pay it back in like three quarters of, or three quarters of a year now. Right. So like, and that's going to solve a huge problem for the, for those people who have lost um, faith in their utility. It's not great because nobody wants to, you know, shell out 600 bucks up, up front, but their price is going to drop. And then we've talked about the water delivery trucks. 
the people who are on the receiving end of those water delivery trucks, they sure as hell would like to be paying less for their water now. It's not like it's going to get like free. And that represents a massive opportunity for a whole bunch of different treatment and water delivery and, uh, and water access solutions that can be able to do a like a much more effective job a lot cheaper and so what we're not saying like we're not sort of trying to like build a business by raising the price of water all the time like all all the stuff that we invest in like makes whatever the problem that they're aiming at better like we everything that we invest in is predicated on not water as we would like it to be but water as it is now totally independent no matter how likely of any kind of regulatory change. And that includes price rises. We don't need price rises for these companies to get more effective. So that's how we, that's how we think about it. Really what we're, what we're, what we're shooting at is for like making water as ubiquitous and available and as cheap as it possibly can be. So actually we're very aligned with, I think the, uh, the, um, the overall kind of you know, overarching ideas of equity that are innate within the, the sector we work in. Thank you, Tom. So I, yeah, I'd like to turn it to Renee next. Um, Renee, what would you like to ask Mohanad? Yeah, so I believe like Tom have come with a lot of, of good points and now we want to change gears a little bit and talk to Mohanad who is working in a very different part of, of the water sector. So Mohanad is the founder of the nonprofit um, Life from Water started in Egypt. Um, and he also began a for-profit enterprise called Waterwill. Um, and we would like to hear more about that. Um, so basically, my question to you, Mohanad, is why did you start the for-profit business, uh, Waterwill, at the same time as actually operating a not-for-profit um, NGO in Egypt? So thank you, Rene, for that uh, question, which is a very important question. Uh, and why both of them? So in, in many cases, you find that either non-profit or for-profit. And whenever we take advice from many people, we got the same advice that we need to focus either on this or on that. But however, in our own experience, we found that we can have both without having any conflict of interest. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, if and only if we can find that alignment to serve the same goal. So for Life Promoter, uh, we are a nonprofit that are based, based in Egypt. We have another nonprofit in Germany, in Canada, and we're operating in many places across Africa. But as you know, and as we have been talking, uh, there is uh, how many millions of people with no access to clean water. And we found that, okay, as a nonprofit, we are scaling. We're helping more people. We reached more than uh, 700,000 people uh, with our water interventions in Egypt and Africa. But we found that uh, this is not sustainable because at the end, we depend on donations. And, and these donations, if the economic uh, situation is better, the donation will be more. If not, the donation will be less. Uh, so we can go for grants. If you apply for grants, it depends. Now we, we have some circumstances around the world where the funds uh, are different from one sector to another. So we thought, uh, we really believe at this cause at the end, that we need to help people with no access to clean water, as Tom was saying, to get the human right, to get that wood. But how we can make this more sustainable? We found that in order to make this more sustainable, we, may, we need to make 
these people or, or work with these people not as beneficiaries but as partners so the, the people in local communities they just passively wait for, for for people like us for other organizations to get the donation money and serve them uh with the water source and in many cases in my sector with working with people in the bottom of the pyramid uh, if if they don't value how important is that intervention, if the if the empowerment part is not is not done properly, then that intervention will not be sustainable. Then, so this is something that we are working on on the non-profit. But but why to open a for-profit? We found okay, we need to work on a, a, a cost-efficient water solution that these people can buy with their own money and to solve their own problem proactively without waiting any uh, people to help them. And if, if that works, then we can scale and can help more people much more faster because they will be our partners moving, scaling and moving forward. So this was the, the, the initial uh, part behind that. So we found that we couldn't do this with a, a non-profit, especially here in Egypt, because legal-wise as a non-profit, uh, I can't get uh, funds to do R&D, the purchases, and so it's it's very complicated. And we don't have, in the law, we don't have the social enterprises. So it's either for-profit or non-profit. So because of this, we've, okay, we said, okay, we will open a for-profit. And with that for-profit, we will raise funds. We will apply for grants so that we get the fund required to do R&D. With the for-profit, it's much more flexible, which was what happened. For a couple of years, we uh, did a lot of R&D until we found our own uh, solution, which is uh, which is not uh, uh, which is applicable and it's already implemented in in some places around the world using the ceramic technology, but based this on the rural uh, and natural resources in the community uh, to have that solution as cost efficient as we can. So this is what. We did, and that's why we started Waterwell. So Waterwell now have its own uh, product that can serve the rural communities. Uh, so th this, yani, yani, more or less, this is why we started Waterwell, and we believe that both of them can work, uh, can work independently. Where life from water focus on the development, on the capacity building, on building partnerships, and Waterwell focus on the technology because it started with that but now we have much more uh, with the R&D much more commercial products where we can have a commercial product making profit but at the same time big part of our profit go back to life promoter in order to be more sustainable. Yeah so, so for me Mohanad it sounds like you have found the perfect balance between those two um, so you're talking about action and, and the choice when you can afford it um, and, and to, to change your own situation and at the same time when you're talking about governance and ruling and things like that as, as you are on the from uh, NGO point of view there is that gap that needs to be closed and, and you are balancing between those two um, to create what we all are looking for, water solutions for everyone. Yes. So uh, balancing is, is, is easier said than done. It, it's, it's very hard to balance, very hard to balance and very hard to create both of them without any conflict of interest. 
And as life promoter, or me as Mohanad, I, I value very much transparency. I have a lot of issues with many organizations in different sectors that you, you, uh, they are not transparent enough so that you as an individual can analyze and can understand how they operate. So as we value transparency, we didn't want to be in a position that people ask our transparency. So for balancing, number one, we decided that there will no be intersected activities. So, for example, in some organization, the model between the nonprofit and the for-profit, where the nonprofit buy the solution from the for-profit. Uh, this can be doable, and legal-wise, it can be doable. But for us, we said, uh, and we found the conclusion that we, we don't want this to happen. So, Waterwell will not get money for life from water. It will be the opposite. Waterwell will always give money to Waterwell, uh, to life from water, as donations, as solutions, and so and so. So life from water focus on the capacity building, and maybe both of them can work together in a bigger project where the funds are coming. Waterwell will bring the technology, and it's explicitly mentioned, and life from water will do the capacity building, will do the delivery, will do the empowerment, and it's explicitly mentioned. And with this and only this, I, I believe we can balance uh, that in a transparent way. Okay, and do you see any difference on, on how that concept and that idea is received uh, in Egypt? And, and as I also know, you operate in, in uh, many other countries. Do you see a difference between uh, Egypt and, and the other markets that you are in? Yeah, the other markets are yeah, more familiar with this. So in other markets, there is many organizations where you can find the non-profit and uh, the for-profit, and both of them are working together. But in Egypt, it, it's not very common. It's, it's very rare here in Egypt to have this. So people in Egypt will assume first without knowing anything that there is a conflict of interest. That's why you need to, to remove this from the table, the first thing that you do. In other places, for example, in in, uh, in Canada, we are operating in Canada, and, and, and it's very, yeah, very sarcastic if I may say that we went to Canada with Life from Water and Waterwell. We opened the two companies, and with uh, with Waterwell, we partnered with Cape Breton University to do some R and D, and then we found that there are some communities in in, in 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 indigenous communities in Canada with no access to clean water. So this is Canada. Canada. We went there to get funds and innovation. And Canada, they do, there is many indigenous communities with no access to clean water. So we end up working together with Waterwell and Life from Water to serve some communities to give them fil uh, water filters and treatment units where they have uranium in water and they have other uh, stuff in water. But in Canada, it, it, people are more familiar uh, with this because the gap and the need in Canada water-wise is, is, is great as well. So in Egypt, it's not that familiar. That's why transparency is a key. Yeah, it, it sounds like you, you, you have really uh, found a way of balancing that, which is, is very difficult. Um, Tom, I would like to ask you if you have any questions for Mohanad and his approach. Um, because I do feel it, it's very different from, from other organizations that, that I have met and that, that I have engaged with. Um, so, Tom? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think what you've said there about the mutually reinforcing model as a, a kind of this fascinating dictum um, I always find is that, is that um, first-time entrepreneurs worry about uh, product and second-time entrepreneurs uh, worry about distribution. 
um, and what you just said about being able to um, uh, combine your two kind of entities and the advantages in distribution from the scale of the initial nonprofit is really, really interesting. I think what I'm really interested in is like, I'd love to know a bit more about how you felt your mindset shift, having to go from the nonprofit world into the for-profit world. I think I used to work for a nonprofit for five and a half years, and I actually think that there should be very little distinction between them. But there are other things that need more emphasis in the for-profit world versus the nonprofit world. How has that? How has that felt? And how? What has that journey been been like for you? Yeah, this is a very interesting question, and I don't know if I can say a very uh, wise answer to this, but. We, we see ourselves in life promoter from the beginning. We are a non-profit, but we see ourselves as a for-profit. So the, the only difference between non-profit and for-profit is that you don't take the profit, you reinvest it. So we believe that we are charity entrepreneurs from the beginning. So it, it shouldn't be different. It shouldn't be different because, and, and this is culture-wise here in Egypt and in some places where the work in non-profit is more traditional, it's more to the ground, and the, the, the for-profit, the more startups, more innovations, and so. So we believe that, or me personally, I believe that uh, the, 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 there is no difference. The only difference is that where the, the money, but organizational-wise, culture-wise, why we wake up each day in yeah, exactly, exactly. And then obviously on a, on a selfish basis, I'd love to know a little bit more about your you, uh, the Waterwheel product. Just talk to us about the genesis of the product and where you see it going. I mean, your, um, whether it's, you know, markets, whether it's going to be adjacent products, how do you see about the, how do you see the development of the for-profit entity working? Yeah, so for the for-profit, we started with our product, with the, which is the ceramic water filter, that it's a basic ceramic water filter that's very cheap. Yeah. Uh, less than 10, 15 dollars uh, where, where, where the people in uh, the rural community can buy. So we started by this and we had the plan of starting building capacity building and building the community in order to, so, uh, to sell the women groups from the community in order to sell uh, these. But we found that it, it, uh, in Egypt, it, it's uh, because the, these ceramic water filters, in a way or another, are uh, the same culture of, the, of the, con uh, the ceramic containers that we have. So people here, culture-wide, they didn't understand that the difference now is now we are filtering the water. We are not storing the water in these ceramic pots. Yeah. So we, we found, okay, it will take time uh, until uh, these, uh, these communities adopt these water solutions. So we thought, okay, with, now we have R&D we have uh, some expertise. So why don't we, with the same technology, the nano-ceramic technology, that we base our basic product to make commercial ones. With these commercial ones, we can make profit because the, uh, the idea with uh, the nano-ceramic, it acts as a pre-treatment. In any treatment unit, you have the pre-treatment and you have the RO sure. system, for example, if the treatment unit. So uh, what the nanocermic is doing is that it do, is, is remove many uh, stages of the pre-treatment with less maintenance cost and less, uh, and less initial cost as well. And it's more durable. And we already partnered with one uh, organization, which is a global uh, player of the nano ceramic as well, but with much more uh, scale, working with factories and so. And we are taking that technology, which is much more advanced than our own technology, in order to see how we can use this technology to make small treatment units. So the end result will be 
plug and play treatment unit. The pre-treatment is based on the nanoceramic, and then we have the RO. The initial cost is much less. The running cost is much less. The energy is much less. The carbon footprint is much less. And then you can compete in the market commercially in the agriculture projects in many uh, projects. And then with the profit, we can make uh, our ceramic water filters with the communities go more faster. So this is the model that we have. That's fantastic. That's so great. As an investor, and you are looking mm -hmm. at the setup and the way that Mohammed has has built up uh, life from water and uh, water will. Would that be like a plug and play um, investment opportunity for you uh, and, and the way that you see uh, the funding going into to the industry? Or do you see that there is this uh, balance between operating an NGO not for profit and then a, a profit company at the same, under the same umbrella and under the same roof? Yeah, so I mean, it, it's absolutely fascinating, and I can't sort of comment further on whether or not it would be like what kind of an investment it would uh, be without actually, you know, understanding a lot more about it and what the um, level of revenue is, the margins, and you know, all the rest of it, and just as a business. But it sounds like what you know, Mahanad is constructing is is uh, deeply compelling. Um, I think it's worth just clicking a little bit on the, my sort of my point of view because I think it's kind of illuminating as to the, the nature of of venture capital which is that just because anything is a good investment as in something that it will be able to make a return above and beyond what is available from the public markets which is usually where things are benchmarked venture is a bit weird so I raised a 30 million fund one um, and the implicit promise within that is that I'm going to give back 3x the amount of cash after taxes and fees for us uh, back to the investors, which basically means getting about 120 to 125 million from a portfolio we, we looked at of being 20 companies. It's actually going to be about 17 companies. But to do that, because everything is so inherently uncertain, we need to have a shot for each individual investment that we make of basically being able to return the fund that we raise. So can we get a $30 million return out of it? And given that our ownership expectations of each individual company are probably at best after dilution, maybe 10%, maybe 15%. But what you're looking at is a company that can sell for somewhere between kind of 300 to 400 million if you have that amount of ownership for each individual bet to remain the same. This is just how the kind of weird maths works out. And so for someone like Mahanad, is that as he's making his um, kind of arguments to people like me, what he needs to present is a really credible opportunity of getting to that size, which if you're selling filters, you're probably looking at about 100 million in revenue to be relevant for people like me. Now, I hasten to add that we're members of you know, the impact assets community, the confluence philanthropy community, there are tons of capital providers that will be much, much more interested in the human impact that Mohanad is making. And without having, you know, as long as there's, there's a possibility of getting their money back, they're going to be all over it. Um, the philanthropy workshop is a great group of, of people as well. So it doesn't have to just be like hard nosed VCs like me. It's about building an argument for the audience of the capital that's, that's there, but I'd love to hear more. Mohanit, I want to give you a chance to ask Tom a question. Do you have any questions for Tom? Yeah, <laughs> I, I can have some uh, questions. But yes, so I, I'm very happy in, in the beginning that 
we, we got many interactions with, with many investors, but uh, yeah, it, it's very rare to find uh, people managing investment investors who are actually into water, yeah. not just into <laughs> numbers. So it's very rare. So and 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 the end, as Mar as Tom was saying, he is not searching. He is searching for the entrepreneur, and the entrepreneur from the other side, he is searching for the investor itself, as that he is interested in this, not just in the number. Uh, and it's not a question. It, it will be an advice from 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 Tom because when we face uh, investors, yeah. they always tell us that. You need to have this very, very ambitious number that you are you are selling millions and millions in the next years. And but from our side, it will not be the case. Yeah, it's, it doesn't mean that we are not ambitious. But yeah, uh, we are working bottom up. We are working with rural communities, which is very hard because you are shifting, you are shifting culture, you are shifting how they think, how they interact. So. We we are we believe in this, but it will not be as easy, and it will not be as fast, and it will not be as attra attractive as just working with water technology uh, in other uh, sectors. That's why we that's why we stopped uh, asking for investment because the advice we got yep. is you need to have traction on the ground. When you have traction, uh, then and you can communicate with investor to to get a fair deal. But I I lost hope with that point. I thought okay. We will uh, grow organically based on our efforts. So I don't know what do you think about this. Firstly, I am such a huge fan of growing organically. I think of all of the ways in which you can bring capital into your business to be able to run it. I think getting money from investors that again then going to be a huge pain in the butt forever uh, is probably option number six. Um, I'm a huge fan of the bootstrap, especially for a business like yours, which is, you know, if you're able to, uh, to fund yourself through, um, the money coming in from your customers or, or various, you know, other, um, you know, non-investment lines, grants, whatever it might be, then you maintain control of your own destiny, which for what you're doing is incredibly important. So firstly, what you've said is it's not a surprise. Um, we need you to go huge. It literally is what we just said, but it is also the inexorable logic of mainstream venture. I suppose my response to it, because I've been a kind of a recipient of, uh, of this as, as well, is that lots of people provide capital for organizations for a lot of different reasons and through a lot of different media. So, you know, whether it's crowdfunding or whether it's, um, you know, just really putting in the legwork to make uh, to have relationships with people like maybe they came from a background where kind of water was scarce and now they've done very well in some kind of adjacent industry. Like there's a huge amount of capital from individuals that is not attached to the kind of logic that I just said. And I've been, I mean, I have 99 LPs. I have a lot of individual investors. All of them want to return, but none of them are really kind of like playing or would not a, or a huge amount of them are playing this kind of, I want you to be Sequoia capital, or I'm going to like hold you in judgment.
you know, there are there are multiple reasons why they're doing it. And part of it is the impact that it's having on water. I think we've told a reasonably effective story about that impact. And I think hopefully one one of the things that you will find as you go through, maybe it's the conversations, it could be grant funders, it could be impact investors, it could be like whatever it is. But as you build these people and build the relationships and tell them the story of what you're doing, that over time, as they see what an effective entrepreneur you are, that actually there will be slightly more, a slightly more kind of increased um, uh, uh, opportunities to add capital into your financing base. Because it sounds like you're doing brilliantly in the absence of capital and long, long may it continue. I really love where this conversation has gone. Um, and my last question for the both of you as we reach the end of our as we as we reach the end of our time together um is one what is your call to action for our listener so what would you like to leave our listener with um you know our show the how and w12 12 plus programs we're very uh, action oriented we're very solutions oriented um so thinking about you know the conversation we've had the work you've done what we what would you like to leave the listener with and part two to that question is what gives you hope? Um, so hope is something else we talk often about. Um, you know, as Tom mentioned, and as Mahana has mentioned, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of challenges that people in water face. And so, what gives you hope? Mahana, why do you why why don't you go for that first? <laughs> okay, uh, okay. Uh, so uh, the first question I, I I I always say if you talk about the action point for for listeners, I will I will always tell them to volunteer because volunteering in that sector because either they go in the non-profit direction or the for-profit direction they will not understand the the situation until they live it uh, uh, my, my fool at the end of the day when i see and and this is the second question when i i live in the rural communities in northern kenya in the borders between here and somalia where they don't have access to clean water for, and they don't have electricity and they have nothing yet. When you do the intervention, you see how dramatically you are making a shift from no water at all to finally we have water. And, and, and this is what gives me hope against everything because I believe giving access to clean water is the most noble thing that you can do to, to people who don't have this basic right and they are accustomed to this. So you will not fully understand this practically until you live it. And then you can make your startup, you can make your own nonprofit or whatever out of this, but you need to live it first. I think that's a great answer. Um, uh, I think the action that I'm going to ask people to do is to donate to uh, Life From Water. <laughs> that's like, I mean, you've literally got a, an immediate impact on this podcast. So I, Mahana, I, I, I'm, I'm sure we'll be able to share the, the details of, of where you would be able to donate to the amazing work that Mahana is doing. But I mean, all of this is absolutely invaluable. You are not going to get a bigger bang for your philanthropic buck than investing in the kind of work that Mahana is doing. And, and so just go and donate. For those of you who are slightly of more means and you're interested in getting to, into the impact investing side of things, I mean, I know from really uh, uh, sort of deep experience in and around the impact investing world is that I never see any happier impact investors than the people who invest in water. Um, once you get into it and you actually understand how uh, how foundational 
this is and how weird it is that this is ignored. Once it actually enters your life and you see it as through the lens that we do and as Mahalan does, like that it is at the foundation of everything. It is the organizational or structure around which society is predicated and helping people who don't have access to that, who don't have access to the kind of uh, sanitation or water treatment or, or whatever it might be is an extraordinary gift because when you wake up in the morning, you look after your water needs first. And until that is done, education and uh, women and girls issues and all of the rest of the work stuff that you do with your day to be able to improve your lot in life, it just gets delayed. So help solve the water first. And again, hopefully we can share the links to be able to, to donate. And then Mahana, I, I heartily encourage you to do a crowdfunding campaign. There are a whole bunch of different uh, various that your areas that you can, you can do it from, but we'd be more than happy to help with the story as you build it. And then in terms of hope, we talked a little bit about, we talked a little bit about the, the public communication knowledge. Um, and it really is the, the predicate of solving this problem is going to take telling our stories so much better but we are getting there. Um, we're getting there. But part of it, unfortunately, part of what's what is allowing the story to be told better is that things are getting worse. But with it, it's exactly the same with climate change. This huge refocus of entrepreneurial energy and, and investment energy really came about, you know, in the last sort of four years as the ramifications of China, climate change became more and more obvious. And I think, I think we're going to do it. And I think we are going to solve water. And I think there will be a water ubiquitous world. There is a water ubiquitous world out there, but there's a lot of work to be done between here and then. Um, but the amount of talented people, both on the entrepreneurial side and the, on the funding side and on the storytelling side, the amount of talented people who are starting to get it in water is, uh, is, a, is a long way from, from where it used to be. So again, long may that continue. Tom, Mahadit, thank you so much for your conversation today. Thank you, thank you, Tom. Thank you so much for being here.